Cultural norms and expectations are all around us. I mean, every culture has a sense of what constitutes proper behavior, what is deemed acceptable and unacceptable. If you are in Germany and someone invites you to their house, you'd best not show up empty-handed, or else you are considered to be rude. If someone gives you, if someone comes and gives you a present, you had best write a little thank you note and send it to them, or else you are deemed rude. Okay, those are relatively simple cultural norms, expectations. But sometimes things come even deeper and they become almost sacred cows that we expect to happen or else we won't take people seriously or perhaps even worse, we'll get angry. Some sacred cows are, there are church contexts where it's just expected that the minister will not only wear a suit, but it had best be a black suit. The Dutch Reformed tradition is like that. Or any elder must be in a suit. There, there are these sacred cow things that exist. I remember in the military, it's, it's just taken, it's not up for discussion. It is an axiom that is held to be true. It is held to be self-evident that all of our soldiers are dying for our freedoms. If you question, really, are they really dying for our freedoms? Are they fighting for our freedoms? I mean, you, are, you may as well have committed high treason to even ask the question. Sacred cows abound. We hold things very tightly. We have ideas of what constitutes right and wrong. And we actually put those on to not only other people, but on to God. What does it look like for God to act in a way that brings blessing? So when we see God lead someone into a difficult time, we question, what? We recoil. We have held opinions we have sacred cows, we have all these things that provide the grid through which we interpret God and each other. Now, in this passage before us, there are actually five distinct episodes, five distinct episodes that are all pointing to the same truth. Jesus, as the authoritative Son of Man, the Son of God, he comes onto the scene to challenge our preconceived notions because until those notions are stripped away, we won't have eyes to see and ears to hear the work that God wants to do in us and is doing in the world around us. I love the way Jesus teaches. As I was telling the officer class, uh, he, he routinely says things or does things in such a way that you can hear it one way if that's your inclination, or you can hear it another way if it's your inclination, hence the reason for the parables. Well, in this passage, you see the first instance of when he calls himself the Son of Man. It's Jesus' absolute most favorite self-designator. He refers to himself repeatedly in the Gospels as the Son of Man. What a profoundly ambiguous term for someone who's trying to get people to see for themselves who he is. You see, oftentimes we associate the Son of Man as a messianic title, which it is. Because Daniel chapter 7 refers to the Son of Man as this heavenly being who gets handed the dominion of an eternal kingdom. But also, 
in the Old Testament, more often than not, son of man is just a metaphor to describe a human being. It's just a guy, one of the, a person among people. So what better term for Jesus to use when he's wanting to keep it ambiguous? Who, who am I? Who do you say that I am? And so he uses an ambiguous term. And he wants us to be confronted with our own prejudices, our own expectations, and then judge for ourselves who he claims to be in the light of what he does. In this passage, in these five episodes, he confronts the Pharisees. In fact, he does more than confront the Pharisees. He confronts at every point a distinct element of the rabbinical tradition that formed the basis of the religious life of that people group in that era. The rabbinical tradition had much to say about virtually every aspect of life. And so Jesus makes no qualms about it. He throws down the gauntlet repeatedly that these are man-made things subject to his override and veto as the king. And what happens when Jesus does this is what oftentimes happens in our own experience when someone rubs our own sacred cows or bumps them over or, or chafes against our expectations. We start at first questioning. We, we recoil at first. But if they keep it up, it turns into anger and resentment. And finally, perhaps we even plot, not hopefully to kill them, but still, we, we, how can we destroy this person in a metaphoric sense? And the anger and resentment is so profound and almost so absurd that at the very end in chapter 3, verse 6, when it says the Pharisees left with the Herodians to conspire together, you see how their anger had led them to, to have ridiculous alliances. The Herodians and the Pharisees were like exact polar opposites. They were like the, the most extreme right of the Tea Party with the most left of the Bernie Sanders crowd. Okay, coming together. The Herodians were, were radical Hellenists who thought the best thing to do was to conform with the life, morals, and way of life of the, of the Greeks and Romans. And the Pharisees were very traditionalist. They pretty much hated each other. Before the time of Christ and after, up until the fall of Jerusalem, they're pretty much warring with each other nonstop. But Jesus made them so angry that they worked together. Jesus definitely caused controversy. Jesus definitely created a scenario where strange bedfellows worked together. And what my conviction is, is that really, if we heed these past, this word, Jesus would still continue to do the same. Jesus still causes controversy because he presses up against our expectations. As you look at the trajectory that starts with the Pharisees wondering, who does this man think he is? And it culminates with them plotting. Remember well that sin has a trajectory. There's a difference between a slippery slope and being on a trajectory. Sin's trajectory is to take you from something small to something great. And if the cycle goes uninterrupted, you will get there. And at every point along the way, Jesus engages with the religious leaders. He challenges them. 
He's almost pleading with them to get off this train, to derail this, because it will lead to destruction. You can almost hear our Lord saying the words of Isaiah 1.18. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But they would not hear it. Be mindful. You may have right now just the seeds of doubt or of a sinful life, a trajectory. Beware. Beware. Its end is open hostility and rebellion. And that's end is death. So, Jesus causes controversy and we will militate against it. We see Jesus in five episodes. We're going to treat the last two as one. But in, so in four treatments here, we see Jesus exerting his authority in a controversial manner. First, in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, we see Jesus audaciously forgiving sins. Jesus forgives sins. Now, first of all, this was very irritating at one level because the Messiah's job was to lead a revolt against Rome. Our problems are real. Our problems are material. Our problems are national security, our finances, our budget, our whatever. Our problems are here and now. And Jesus, if you're the Messiah, you address our problems. But he's preaching the word. And he's preaching them about a spiritual problem. So he's not doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. The rabbinical tradition has a list. You can read it in the Apocrypha about all these wonderful things that the Messiah is going to be like. All the wonderful things he's going to do. I mean, it makes it sound like he's Superman or something. But at the end of the day, he's just a man. And he does not have the power to forgive sins. So Jesus... We have an idea of what the Messiah is supposed to be like. And you're not addressing the problem. In fact, not only are you not addressing the problem and dealing with our problems, you're pointing out something that we're not interested in. We're not talking about sin. This is the only time where Jesus heals someone by saying your sins are forgiven first. He's pointing out a spiritual issue, and they want to be talking about the political issue. Your problem is not of this world primarily. It's spiritual. And all your earthly problems, like your sicknesses, even those, your sickness is not caused by a sin, a specific sin, but it's symptomatic of a sinful realm, a sinful existence. And so if any hope is to be had for your earthly existence, you have to be made right with God. They didn't want to hear that at all. And you're taking the prerogative to forgive sins? Who do you think you are? So, he asserts his divine prerogative to forgive sins, something that they were not expecting, and they rebelled. Second, in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2, we see Jesus having utter disregard for their social distinctions. The rabbis had very sharp distinctions of who was clean and who was unclean, who was acceptable and who was unacceptable. And they used the label sinner 
not in the absolute theological sense that we use. We use the word sinner just to describe any human being who has, in fact, committed a sin. They use it to describe a class of people, kind of like the wisdom literature refers to righteous and, and, and sinners and stuff like that, that a sinner was a person who, by their life or lifestyle, was living in brazen disregard of the word of, and law of God. They weren't even trying to keep it. And so sinners were just a disgusting group of people. They looked down their noses at them. And of course, you've, if you've ever been to Sunday school, you know that tax collectors were considered the vilest of the vile. These were Jewish folks who colluded with the Roman government to extort the people in every aspect of life. And they made their living by extorting the people of Israel. So despised were they that the rabbinical tradition actually said it was an act of righteousness to lie to or deceive a tax collector. So they, these people were, were despicable. So I don't know what we have that would correspond to that. But just think of if a, if a streetwalker came in here, how you might react. And imagine it worse, because they thought it was righteous to deceive them. And so Jesus not only has the audacity to talk to such a one, but to call, to have him become one of his disciples, to have him become an apostle. And then Jesus in his house, when he's at Matthew's house, he's reclining, enjoying a sign of fellowship with all these various kinds of sinners. And we don't make much of that because we you know, just come to expect it but that is not what you would be expecting the religious leader to do. That is not what you'd be expecting the respectable person to do. And so Jesus is showing utter disregard for the teaching of the rabbis about what constitutes clean, what constitutes unclean. And in fact, by hanging out with these sinners, he's seeming, in their mind, to be saying that it's okay. And by hanging out with them and not hanging out with the righteous people, he's seeming to show disregard for the righteousness of the righteous. And then third, in verses 18 to 22, Jesus repudiates extra-biblical religiosity. And what I mean by that is they had a lot of rules to guard the, the law. If it was wrong to work on the Lord's Day or the Sabbath, well, then it must be wrong to pluck heads of grain from the field as you're walking through it. And so they created these rules to protect the other rules. And then they gave the rules that they created the same force as the original commandment. Now, much has been said, especially since the 1960s, about how Jesus doesn't like religiosity. And I'm not going to challenge that. But it still runs in the heart of man to have those extra biblical commandments. I mean, I'm not here to step on your toes too much any more than Jesus would have me. But I distinctly remember at Moody Bible Institute, I distinctly remember you can't, have, you can't grow a beard here because a beard is worldly. Said in the shadow of a statue of Dwight L. Moody with his big beard like a stonewall jackson beard 
And I distinctly remember, I mean, here's the rationale. And, and they thought they had a rationale for their rules. How, I'm not telling you what, you what you think, but who's heard that it's sinful to smoke? If you've heard it, okay? And the rationale goes like this. Our body is the temple of the Lord. Smoking is harmful to the body. Ergo, smoking is sinful. See how? Oh, that makes lots of sense. So we create these rules. And we don't just say it's ill-advised to smoke. We treat people as if, I mean, you're sinner. Unclean. Because we put up these rules. And Jesus is going, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so he makes a reference. All this new work that God is doing in the lives of people, he, he actually makes a really, really audacious statement. And we kind of gloss over it. But his statement about putting new wine in old wineskins is actually pretty revolutionary. Because the new wine has in fact come. The wine that he's talking about is the new way of living with God rightly. The new way of doing religion, so to speak. The new way of relating to God and each other on the basis of God's work. That's the new wine that has, in fact, come. But you people, you're insisting on using the old wineskins of the traditions that you have developed. Now, an old wineskin, for those who are kids and don't understand, they didn't age their wine in, in, in uh, uh, kegs or cask or, or, or whatever in wood barrels. They would put them in, a, in a, typically a, an animal's organ or something or, or, or leather, and they would let the wine ferment in the leather. And what would happen as the wine ferments, it would stretch and expand the wine skin, the container that it was in. Once it had done its stretching... Once it was a used wineskin, it had stretched as far as it could stretch. So if you came in then and tried to reuse it and put new wine into that old wineskin that had already been stretched as far as it can stretch, well, once that wine started fermenting, there was no more give to the wineskin and it would just burst. So you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Their traditions, their customs, the structures they had in place to govern their religious life was the old wineskin. And now that the new wine had come, their old wineskins, their old structures, their old rules would not suffice. And so, Jesus was actually being pretty radical by implicitly saying that your old ways of doing religion had to go had to go. Think about how many times we look back at a given era and we want to try to do religion the way it was done in the 50s, the way it was done in the 60s. We have expectations for what right looks like. Maybe it's not wearing a black suit, but it's wearing a suit nonetheless. What constitutes right and what I'm saying, I think Jesus is telling us, is objectively a new wine had come and the old wineskins of the old covenant worship system had to go. But I do think that relatively speaking to all of us and every generation, he's letting us know that there's a way of thinking and behaving that can become 
an actual obstacle to the fresh work of God that he's doing in any particular place or time. So are we prepared to process what Jesus may be doing in our own day? Or do we judge everything on the basis of the wineskins we've inherited from our parents or grandparents? Do we look at Jesus and say, you know what, I may have to develop a new pattern for what right looks like. So, do you say that if you're not wearing a suit and tie, you're sinning? Do you say if you're dancing, you're worldly? What do you say? Then fourth, perhaps most profoundly, Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. In verses 23 of chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 6, there are two episodes that both pertain to the Sabbath precisely because the Sabbath was a system that covered and governed the entire life of the people of that era. You see, by the Sabbath's system of the Old Testament, there was not only a weekly Sabbath, but there was a a seasonal, annual, every seven years, every 49 years. That system of Sabbaths regulated their lives. There's an implicit statement there. Jesus is declaring lordship over the very way we regulate our existences. What constitutes acceptable behavior in honor of him? The Sabbaths were a system that had been instituted by God for the good of his people. But as people are wont to do, the Pharisees and religious leaders had put up all these rules that turned the Sabbath from being a day of delight to being an oppressive day, a day of formalism, a day devoid of charity. And it's not just back then. You can read about Charles Dickens. He grew up and he despised the Lord's Day. He despised it. He despised Christianity too, but specifically the Lord's Day. He wrote poems about it. He makes reference to it in several of his books because in his day he saw the formalism of how people acted on Sunday in England, how there was no mercy. They shut down. They, they actually stopped taking care of the poor people and the hungry. No mercy and no compassion that he could perceive. And so he despised it. He thought that the Lord's Day was a day that religious people used to actually get out of helping their fellow man in the name of serving their God. Now, I'm not telling you that Charles Dickens was right, but he had... He had his eye to what can happen when people do turn it into a day of formalism like the Pharisees had done. So they see Jesus walking in the field, picking grain. You will search the Old Testament in vain for a a verse that prohibits the picking of grain when you're hungry and famished walking through a field. It just says you shall not work, you shall not light a fire, you shall not cook. But in their book of regulations, chapter 4, section 23 Paragraph 2, line A, thou shalt not pick grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus takes them back to the Bible, to 1 Samuel 21, where David does that and more. 
And so he declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that he, as the Son of God, has the right to reinterpret what they've been misinterpreting and to reapply the principles that God had set in place. And this blew them out of the water and drove them crazy. Who does this guy think he is? There was few things more sacred to them than their Sabbath. The Sabbath principle, as you know, is set forth in Genesis chapter 2. God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath is mentioned as a day is mentioned over 88 time, 89 times in the Old Testament. And it's re- repeatedly referred to as a covenant with Israel. So they took it very special. Who does this guy think he is? But all they were concerned about was maintaining their traditions and maintaining their control over people. You see, there's a group of people out there that exists that loves having a religious system in place that makes people the slaves of that system over which they can act as masters. Beating people up with commandments that may or may not even be in the actual Bible. And Jesus, he won't have anything of that. This day was meant to be a day for your rest, for you to glorify God and show trust in Him to meet all your needs and to be equipped to go out the rest of your week and to do good for those who need it. But they didn't think that way at all, which is why the second incident happens. I am astonished by what happens here. If you look at verse, um, if you look at verse uh, 20, uh, uh, 3, 1, the second incident, it's astounding. So Jesus goes into the synagogue. It's the day of worship. It's church. And there's just a man there. He's not, he doesn't come seeking Jesus out. He's just there, and he has a withered hand. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Likely he had, he had, he had crushed it or, or injured it somehow several years before, and so his hand was now useless. Now, in order to understand the, the, the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees here, it's hard in our own day to get by with one hand. I mean, our lives are pretty easy histo- compared to the other histories and places of the world. I mean, we don't have to pull up our own water from wells. We don't have to go kill our own food. We don't have to build our own house. I mean, we can push buttons, pull levers, make a phone call, But even in our own existence, it's hard to get by with one hand. They didn't have prosthetics back then, so he has one hand. And so his life has been a life of hardship. It's been hard for him to grind his flour with one hand. It's been hard for him to get by. And you would think, oh, oh, there's someone here who can actually do something about this poor man's plight. It doesn't cost the Pharisees a nickel for Jesus to heal this guy. They're not at all thinking about this man and how much better off he could be. They're not thinking about him, his problem. All they know is there's a guy there, and they're watching Jesus. Is he going to do something on the Sabbath? They don't care about this guy at all. And Jesus asks them. He points it out. And he says they're looking at them. And they're not saying a word. They go, they could, these are the, the religious, these are the pastors, and they don't give a rip about this guy and his problem. They don't care that he could be made healed in an instant. 
All they care about is maintaining control over the Sabbath because if the people get it in their heads that they can have some freedom on the Sabbath, then there goes a little bit of their power. And so they just watch Jesus. And Jesus' response here in the Greek is amazing. It says he's angry in our ESV. The word translated angry there is not annoyed, disturbed. It's not irritated. It's the word that's translated wrathful. So he's furious at their hard-heartedness. But then, angry, comma, distressed at their hard-heartedness. The word translated distressed, it refers to a deep sorrow for someone. So at the same time that our Lord is furious with them for their hard-heartedness, He's sorry for them because he understands where this is going to take them. How many of us, we sit there, those bad Pharisees, how many of us see people who need help or, 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 or watch ministries that are helping other people and instead of rejoicing that someone can be helped, how are they, why are they doing it that way? What are they doing? Don't have a hard heart like them. And so, Jesus, in these examples here, he's challenging their sense of what right looks like. He's pushing their buttons. He's bumping into their sacred cows. What's acceptable on the Sabbath. What's acceptable to be called clean or unclean. But then I see in this passage how people respond to Jesus as he's doing this. You see, Jesus will come into your life and push the buttons. Things will come up in your faith that will cause you to have some friction between what you are conditioned to accept as right and good by your culture or your religiosity. And he will he'll aggravate you. If you haven't gotten a little angry at Jesus in the course of your life, you, you, you may not be trying hard enough. Because <laughs> he pushes your buttons. But how do you respond to Jesus? It all comes down to how you see yourself. Jesus said it rightly. I came to call the sick. You see, when he says that the well have no need of a physician, but the sick do, he was not telling them, oh, you're okay. You're hunky-dory. You're well. He wasn't saying that at all. He was addressing their perception. Oh, you all think you're okay. Well, if you think you're well, well, I didn't come to call the well. How many of us sit here stone, hard, cold to the plight of those who need mercy? How many of us sit here wrapped up in our religiosity, thinking we're okay? And meanwhile, Jesus is saying, I didn't, come for the, I didn't come for the well. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as basically okay? Or do you see yourself as desperately needy? The opening episode strikes me at what faith looks like. 
You see, we have it in our heads that if you believe in Jesus, this is one of those sacred cows again, if you believe in Jesus, you'll adopt a moral code or, or, a, set of, or, a, or a set of sensibilities that will basically turn you into a, a white middle-class American. And so, how it applies in episode one, we see these four guys bring their leper friend, or not leper, sorry, paralytic friend. Now, if we had been there, my guess is if that we had been there, we would have said, oh, you want, you want Jesus to heal you? Oh, show you, you faith, you can, he believe you. Wonderful, wonderful. Sit here and wait for Jesus and he'll come out eventually. He'll come out eventually. And, and, and in due time, faith, patience, wait on the Lord. And he'll come out and heal you. But what do they do? It's really astonishing if you think about it. We just read the story. They climb up on the house. And, you know, the houses were mud houses. And so imagine you're inside the house and Jesus is talking. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, like dirt and, 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 and ch- chunks of, of mud and straw start falling through. And then lights come in. What in the world? And you look up. They burrowed a hole through someone's house to get to Jesus. How rude. Who's going to pay for that? Well, now that I just healed you, you better get back up there and fix that hole you made. You can only imagine what everyone's thinking. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, Son, your sins are forgiven you. In Scripture, we are not taught the genteel little white upper middle class value. We're taught to go hard after Jesus. They were desperate. They loved their friend. And they knew that in that house was the only possible hope for him. And they, if you had said, oh, wait, Jesus will come out eventually. The crowds will be here any minute. We may never get close to him. This may be the closest we get to Jesus. We have got to do something. And so they went up there and they burrowed a hole in the roof to get their friend to Jesus. That is faith. Flee to Jesus. Get me to Jesus or else I die. That's what faith looks like. And you see Levi, or Matthew as he's called in other places. Jesus comes up to him. He's a despicable man. I mean, let's be honest. I'm not romanticizing him at all. He's a despicable guy. He's made his living off of extorting people. And Jesus has come. And he's depicted as getting up from his table, which was playing the odds about how they worked. It was on the side of a road. And they would, and they would stop people, flag them down as they were passing by to tax them for whatever they happened to have. He gets up from his table and follows Jesus. And then he's so amazed at 
who Jesus is and what he's done for him, that he has a party in his house, inviting his friends who are likewise vile, wretched people. That's faith. Think about it. Most of the vile, wretched people you know, they might be ashamed to tell their vile, wretched friends that they've had a change of heart and they're no longer going to be vile, wretched people. Because hard people deal hardly with their, you know. But he's like, Jesus or else we die. And so he brings his friends. And so all the religious leaders, you would think that they would at least be counting conversions to Judaism or something. But no. They want power. They want prestige. And so they resist Jesus and his new wine. So what will you do? In the course of your life, Jesus will push your buttons. Will you maintain an open attitude to the work that Jesus is doing? That he is the sovereign Lord. And he calls the most crazy people. And he blesses the most ridiculous means sometimes. But he sees the heart. And he calls it faith. And he pardons sin. Maybe we should take a note from Jesus and get rid of the old wineskins that were used by the Pharisees. And the early church immediately picked up those old wineskins. You see, the Jews, they fasted twice a week. On Monday and Thursday, that was when they fasted to show how serious about God they were. In the early church, in the Didache, we're not those vain hypocrites, the Jews. We do not fast as they do in their vain, hypocritical way. Therefore, we will fast on Tuesdays and Fridays. Read it. That's what it says. Jesus is our Savior, and He calls sinners to Himself. But in the process, He'll push your buttons. How will you respond? What will you do? Will you reject Him as a fraud? Or receive him as a Lord. Let's pray.